Section 17 of The Outline of Science, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madeline Hertz. The Outline of Science, Volume 4, by J. Arthur Thompson. Chapter 35, Ethnology. There are sound reasons for regarding the existing races of mankind as varieties of one species, Homo sapiens, just as the numerous breeds of pigeons are offshoots from the ancestral stock of the rock dove. One reason is that, so far as is known, the members of the different races are fertile with one another, giving rise to fertile crosses, such as mulattoes. Another reason is that the embarrassingly numerous races grade into one another. And a third reason may be found in the extreme improbability that such a happy new departure as the modern man type, Homo sapiens, would arise more than once in evolution. It is likely that some tentative types, like Neanderthal man, antecedent to the modern man type, became extinct or were absorbed. It is likely that Homo sapiens arose from a stock which he shared with the Neanderthal, the Heidelberg, and the Pithecanthropus races. One species with many races. The number of different races of man is very large, but the phenomenon is familiar at lower levels. A group of living creatures belonging to a species becomes in some way isolated. Variations or mutations may occur in the families, and they are often numerous. Selection or sifting sets in and the variants, which are fittest in relation to the particular conditions of life, become dominant over their neighbors. Inbreeding occurs, and the new characters become firmly established, while analogous recessive characters with a disadvantageous bias are sifted out. A race is established. Thus, if the original color of man was brown, a dark-colored race or a white race may have arisen over and over again in different parts of the earth. It must be understood also that a removal of isolation barriers, example by a migration or an invasion, would tend to bring about a mingling of races, and as a result, new permutations and combinations. Inbreeding promotes stability and uniformity. Outbreeding promotes variability unless the divergence of the parents is too pronounced. One is apt to underestimate the possibilities of novelties. Professor E. G. Conklin writes, The principles of Mendelian inheritance show that for every pair of contrasting characters in the two parents, as for example, straight or curly hair, brown or blue eyes, there are two types of grandchildren showing these characters. When there are five such pairs of contrasting characters in the parents, there may be two to the fifth, or thirty-two types of grandchildren, showing various combinations of these five characters. When there are ten pairs of contrasting characters, there may be two to the tenth, or one thousand twenty-four types of grandchildren. Between different races, there are many more than ten unit differences, and thus, with a relatively small number of mutant characters, an enormous number of different combinations of the characters is possible in the offspring. Subsequent inbreeding of such a mixed race leads to the separation or segregation of particular types, 
having certain of these combinations, from other types having other combinations. As with domestic animals and cultivated plants, so with human races. Mutations or variations arise as to the conditions determining the origin of the distinctly new, there is little certainty. There is sifting by selection and stabilizing by inbreeding. There is mingling with fresh blood and a fresh shuffling of the hereditary cards. There emerges a new set of novelties. There is sifting and inbreeding again. In outline, that is how race forming has come about. 1. The primary groups of mankind. More for convenience than with conviction, ethnologists are accustomed to recognize three primary groups of human races, the black, the yellow, and the white. Each group has numerous subdivisions or races. Each race may have its subrace, each subrace its breeds, each breed its stocks. 1. The group of black or negroid races is typically characterized by darkly pigmented skin, frizzly hair, a broad, flat nose, thick lips, prominent eyes, large teeth, a narrow hip girdle, and long heads, dolichocephaly. But there's great variety within the group, which includes African Negroes, South African Bushmen, various pygmy races, together with such divergent types as the Melanesians and the Australian Blackfellows, who have not frizzly hair. Two. The group of yellow or Mongolian races is typically characterized by yellowish skin, black straight hair, broad face with prominent cheekbones, small nose, sunken narrow eyes, moderately sized teeth, and diverse types of skull. Here come in Chinese, Japanese, Tibetans, Siamese, Burmese, Malays, brown Polynesians, Maoris, the Eskimo, and Red Indians and most divergent of all, the Laps and Finns, the Magyars and Turks. 3. The group of white or Caucasian races is typically characterized by soft and straight hair, well-developed beard, retreating cheekbones, narrow and prominent nose, small teeth, and broad hip girdle. But the group includes, along with the fair-haired and white-skinned people of Northern Europe, the dark-haired and often dark-complexioned Southerners. Thus, in Europe, we may distinguish the tall and blonde Nordics, the stocky, dark Alpines, and the small, dark Mediterraneans, while in Asia there are the Indo-Aryan and other types. It hardly requires to be said, for the heterogeneity of our enumeration is so evident that these three primary groups, Negroid, Mongolian, and Caucasian, do not mean very much scientifically. Yet. Everyone will admit that a Persian is nearer to a Britisher than a Hottentot is, and we think we understand what an Arab is after, while a Chinaman remains a Sphinx. A change of outlook. A generation ago, it was thought possible to distinguish three primary races, a phrase we have not used, black, yellow, and white, and it was commonly thought that these represented a very ancient trifurcation of the human species but there are good reasons for suspecting that this view, which we might call the Shem, Ham, and Japheth view, is all too simple. No doubt the contrasts are striking and real. We are all familiar, Sir Arthur Keith writes, with the features of that racial human type which clusters round the heart of Africa. 
We recognize the Negro at a glance by his black, shining, hairless skin, his crisp hair, his flattened nose, his widely opened dark eyes, his heavily molded lips, his gleaming teeth and strong jaws. He has a carriage and proportion of body of his own. He has his peculiar quality of voice and action of brain. He is, even to the unpractised eye, clearly different from the Mongolian native of northeastern Asia. The skin, the hair, the eyes, the quality of brain and voice, the carriage of the body and proportion of limb to body serve to pick out the Mongol as a sharply differentiated human type. Different from either of them is the native of Central Europe, the Aryan or Caucasian type of man. We know him by the paleness of his skin and by his facial features, particularly his narrow, prominent nose and thin lips. We are so accustomed to the prominence of the Caucasian nose that only a Mongol or Negro can appreciate its singularity in our Aryanized world. Now, if the distinctive features are so well marked as this great authority indicates, why should we hesitate to accept them as indicative of a fundamental trifurcation of the human species? The answer is interesting. 2. Hormones and Ethnology At many points in this outline of science, reference has been made to the ductless glands of internal secretion which manufacture hormones and chelones, potent chemical messengers discharged into the blood. The pituitary body, about the size of a ripe cherry, attached to the base of the brain and cradled in the floor of the skull, makes a secretion that regulates growth. An abnormal enlargement brings about acromegaly, which profoundly alters the character of face and body, hands and feet, or the youth may become an unhealthy giant, or the limbs may grow disproportionately long, and the sex system fail to develop properly, the result being sometimes unicoid obesity. We are justified, Sir Arthur Keith says, in regarding the pituitary gland as one of the principal pinions in machinery which regulates the growth of the human body and is directly concerned in determining stature, cast of features, texture of skin, and character of hair, all of them marks of race. When we compare the chief racial types of humanity, Negro, the Mongol, and the Caucasian or European, we can recognize in the last named a greater predominance of the pituitary than in the other two. The sharp and pronounced nasalization of the face, the tendency to strong eyebrow ridges, the prominent chin, the tendency to bulk of body and height of stature in the majority of Europeans are best explained, so far as the present state of our knowledge goes, in terms of pituitary function. Before this view can be accepted in its entirety, there must be very precise comparisons of the pituitary body in different races, for science begins with measurement. But the idea is plainly a shrewd one. It does not mean that the European is an acromegalic in disguise. It means that variations in the development of the ductless glands may account for some of the changes that are rung on human characters. There is some evidence that some of the extinct giant vertebrates had relatively large pituitary bodies. 
Variations in the development and activity of these regulating organs may have played an important part, not only in the evolution of human races, but in the evolution of vertebrate types. We must not follow this fascinating line of thought much further, but it may be noted that the hormones from the reproductive organs have a profound influence on many characters of the body, that the suprarenal secretions affect pigmentation and hair, that the thyroid glands set astride in the windpipe just behind Adam's apple influence skin and hair, skull and skeleton, that two kinds of dwarfs are due to a defect in their growth regulating function, that the abnormal children, significantly called Mongolian idiots, are not reversions to hypothetical Mongolians supposed to have once lived in Europe, but are the outcome of disordered thyroid functioning. Given a susceptible structure, variations in the internal secretions may account for many features which have been overexalted as deep racial differences. On the other hand, we must not minimize these racial differences because Sir Arthur Keith gives us a clue which makes them more intelligible. The difference between male and female is a very profound one, and nonetheless far-reaching because it may turn out to be fundamentally a difference in the rate and rhythm of metabolism, or because the actualization of some of the secondary sex characters depends on the liberating stimulus supplied at appropriate times by hormones from the reproductive organs. It is a luminous idea, however, that racial differences in skull and skin and hair and color may be correlated with hereditary variations in the ductless glands, and we see the likelihood that the same types, example pygmies, may have arisen repeatedly on different lines of evolution and in widely separated parts of the world. Modern science has transformed the old Ham, Shem, and Japheth doctrine. 3. The Making of Races Ethnology studies races rather than nationalities, and by a race is meant a subspecies or a variety, a group of individuals with many features in common, and with a community of ancestry within itself greater than that between it and another race. But the difficulty is to find pure races in modern times, after so many centuries of intermingling. A race may consist of clans, and a clan of tribes, and a tribe of communities, and a community of families, all these words implying different degrees of kinship. But the idea of kinship is not necessarily implied in the word nation or nationality, which is a political conception, a social integrate with a geographical home, and some measure of psychical unity. A unified nationality may include several distinct races, but in some cases, such as the Swedes, race and nation are almost convertible terms. It is plain, however, that kinship groupings, with which ethnology deals, must be distinguished from political and social groupings. The making of numerous races depends, first of all, on man's migratory tendencies and the question rises why mankind has spread over all the earth. Even in prehistoric times, man has gone practically everywhere. There were Morioris in New Zealand before the Maoris. The American Indians were preceded by the Mound Builders. 
there has always been someone before Columbus, and the question is why man is the most wide-ranging of all mammals. The answer must be found in his big brain. Always restless, ever adventurous, able to adapt life to circumstances and to force nature into service. But we must look for spurs to adventure in the ever-recurrent pressure of increased population and in the frequent changes of climatic and other environmental conditions. Man is not a very prolific organism, but parental care is strong and effective, and a little one soon becomes a thousand, and a small band a great nation. The pressure of increasing population may be checked by infanticide, or by a very high death rate. Perhaps the keener spurt was an environmental change, such as the setting in of aridity, which made trekking imperative. As Ellsworth Huntington and others have shown, climatic changes and diversities have had a profound effect on human evolution. They prompt migration, they insist on initiative, they sift and winnow, and perhaps they stimulate variability. The old view that in a new climate men acquired new modifications, which were entailed as racial characters, is not readily tenable. In the new country, new germinal variations crop up, and there is an elimination of the relatively less fit variants. It is indirect rather than direct adaptation that we see in the establishment of races. Wandering is prompted by the adventurous spirit, by pressure of increasing population, and by climatic changes. Adaptive varieties arise. But we cannot leave out of account the conflict of races, which has gone on through the ages almost without ceasing. Diffusion and spreading may mean at first nothing more than man versus nature, but sooner or later they involve man versus man. Over and over again, a superior race has ousted an inferior. Over and over again, the victory in the long run has been with the conquered. It would be preposterous within brief limits to try to estimate the relative importance of the various forms of the human struggle for existence, but it is idle to deny that the conflict of races has been one of the sieves of mankind. Diffusions, migrations, raids, conquests, colonizations bring about intermingling or hybridization. In regard to the profitable limits of this, we know little. The union of races, having markedly different characteristics, is apt to be disappointing. Hence, the popular prejudice against the half-breeds, doctors East and Jones, have put the case biologically. Through the operation of the laws of heredity, such unions tend to break apart series of character complexes which through years of selection have proved to be compatible with each other, and with the persistence of the race under the environment to which it has been subjected. Because of the transmission of factors in linked groups, the low probability of obtaining a single recombination equal or superior to the average of the latter race does not warrant the production of multitudes of racial mediocrities, which such a mixture entails. But there is another fact, which history seems to verify, 
that very good results follow the intermingling of peoples who are unlike, but not too unlike. Thus, Great Britain is inhabited by a very variable people whose blood includes contributions from many diverse Nordic Aryan stocks. Similarly, the so-called Jewish race is made up of complex crosses. The moral is that in a strong nation, the mingling of good stocks is promiseful. Ethnology and Population There is diversity of fertility in different races, and this has been operated as a factor in evolution. There has always been a yellow peril, or of some other color. As a matter of fact, the yellow races are not at present increasing very rapidly in numbers, for while their fecundity is high, so is their death rate. Similarly, in the United States, the rate of increase of the blacks is not equal to that of the whites, for the death rate among the Negroes is high. It is plain that differential fertility, greater increase in some races than in others, must lead to struggle in many forms, prompting wars, migrations, and colonizations, leading to social unrest and distress, and sometimes profoundly affecting the current moral sentiment for it is very interesting to observe in contemporary evolution how economic conditions lead naturally to polygamy in one tribe and to polyandry in another, to exposure of female infants in one region and to their welcome in another. But, beyond the problem of differential fertility, there is that of the possible overpopulation of the globe. Every year, some 40 million persons die, but far more than that are born. It has been estimated that the human population is at present about 1,700,000,000, about a third of these being white. In most of the older civilized countries, there has been for some years a decline in the birth rate, but there is also a notable lowering of the death rate. As civilization develops, the length of life will be increased and the health rate will be heightened. The world will become too full though prophetic statisticians differ considerably as to the date of the tight fit. The population question, said Huxley, is the real riddle of the Sphinx, to which no political Oedipus has yet found an answer. In view of the ravages of the terrible monster, over-multiplication, all other riddles sink into insignificance. There are two suggestions, however, which must be considered. The first is that science is rapidly increasing man's mastery of the resources of nature. In many a field, he can reap a richer harvest every year, and at less cost. The limits of this are unknown. The second suggestion is that increased birth control in its most enlightened forms. Must races decline? There is no one answer to the difficult problem of the decline of races. 1. Sometimes there may have been a hopeless context with a relatively fitter civilization, especially when that included entirely new weapons, appliances, diseases, and luxuries. It is not necessary that the contact of the old and new should involve a malevolent conflict. Even Pacific unconformability may be fatal as the modern story of some Central African tribes clearly shows. 2. Sometimes, perhaps an aggressive and insurgent sub-race, or 
more usually a nationality, may outstep itself in militarism, may suffer too severely from an elimination of its best men, and may be overwhelmed by hordes of pushing and populous newly integrated peoples, naturally, and not altogether unjustly, called barbarians. Even Julius Caesar complained that there was beginning to be a lack of men. 3. Sometimes, perhaps, the damning factor has been a slackening of morale, an insatiable love of luxury and ease, a slackening of the biological ideal of good stock and happy families, a relapse into the prosaic, the epicurean, and the flabby. For lack of vision, as well as for lack of knowledge, the people perish. 4. Sometimes, we think, the fatal blow has come from the hand of God. A succession of arid seasons, which has happened often, a failure of agricultural and pastoral industry, a dismal turning of fruitful land into desert, and then came the desperate trekking, often, if not often set, a tragedy, though sometimes eventually a great success. Or it might be that the hand of God expressed itself in the introduction and the normal course of events of a new terror, such as a new parasite. So, according to some authorities, the introduction of the malaria-disseminating mosquito into Greece brought about the warning of that glory. And everyone knows how modern races allow themselves to be victimized by avoidable parasitic diseases, just as the heathens, more excusably, submit to hookworm and its horrors. Yet it does not seem to be biologically necessary that a race should decline and die out. On the animal genealogical tree, there are many branches that have been dead for millions of years. The fossil-bearing rocks, the great graveyards of the buried past, are full, not only of ancestors, but of lost races. Yet, there are many very ancient races of animals that are going strong today, and there seems no reason why this should not hold true for human races also provided that the survival value of health and vigor of body and mind is practically recognized. End of section 17. Recording by Madeline Hertz.